God. I'd like to turn with you this morning to Matthew and chapter 3. Matthew and chapter 3. John the Baptist was a phenomenal witness. He was a burning and a shining light. And that's the Lord Jesus' verdict. He was in many ways the greatest of the prophets. And of course he succeeded 400 years of silence. Many people, in fact Luke says all people, began to muse in their hearts whether he was the Christ. They were so impressed with him. And his doctrine was so simple. He said if you've got two coats, give your one coat to those who lack it. If you have extra food, give it to those who are needy. To the soldiers, he said, do no violence, do no injustice, but, and be content with your wages. Very simple. And his lifestyle was very austere. His clothing was legendary. A camel's hair garment with a leather belt, very reminiscent of Elijah. And his food was very simple. Very modern. Locusts and wild honey. When he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him, he said some of the most shocking words in the whole of the Bible. Here they are in verse 7. He says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, offspring of snakes, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he goes on to say, real repentance, real repentance means real change, a real departure from sin. And he warns them, don't be complacent. Don't imagine that your religious practice will keep you from divine justice. Don't imagine that coming to church or going to the synagogue or pretending you know the Bible or that you pray will deliver you from his justice. The divine axe is laid at the root of the tree as though the woodsman was about to chop it down. If there's no fruit, if there's no blessing, then the only future for you, he says, is one of unquenchable fire. Oh, friends, many people often say the Old Testament is a very severe book and the New Testament is gentler and softer. But I can tell you, If you sift through the the, uh, Proverbs and the Prophets and the words of the law, you won't find such severe words as these anywhere amongst them. We read in Psalm 58 that the wicked are likened to snakes in that the poison inside them is like snakes. The poison under their lips, the untamably stubborn nature. If you read Isaiah, you'll find... He describes the plans and the schemes of the evil one like serpents' eggs that are crushed almost as soon as they give birth to their plans. But John looked at these visitors from Jerusalem, from the scholarly institutions of the day. He saw their motives. He saw their intentions. He looks into their hearts and he's inspired to use this description. Offspring of snakes. Well, imagine, friends, you were travelling in a bathroom, or you were travelling somewhere in the Middle East, and you went after a long day into the bathroom and locked the door, and you were perhaps washing your face, brushing your teeth, and you looked through the mirror, 
suddenly you see a snake behind you in the room about to bite your naked leg how would you react? with horror no doubt especially if it was something poisonous like a cobra you see John is saying to the Sadducees and the Pharisees God looks at you as we would look at that snake something poisonous something dangerous something harmful something toxic something that has to be dealt with straight away something that needs to be destroyed quickly for the safety of others imagine you're walking on the moors in England and your foot pressed upon an old stick then suddenly you hear a hiss and a flash of colour goes before your eyes and you realise the stick is a viper and there it is your shoes are very short you're not wearing socks and there it is poised to grab you with its teeth, with its fangs it's you or it you strike it down immediately well friends again it's a picture of how he sees them they thought of themselves as teachers of lights of guides to a darkened world but John is saying you're not like that at all you don't know yourselves you don't know your character you don't know how God sees you and you're hypocrites you're not even upholding the pathetic standards by which you're teaching and you're poisonous deadly corruptors of the young well as though we might think that John had had some sort of fit of anger and pique at these particularly evil men the Lord Jesus Christ himself repeats these, this same description twice once in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 33 where he says these words uh, either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit verse 33 and verse 34 O generation of vipers offspring of snakes how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Your heart is poisonous. Your heart is dark, he's saying to them. And then again in, verse, in chapter 23, where the Saviour speaks again in a similar vein, verse 31, he says this, Wherefore you be witness unto yourselves that you are the children of them which kill the prophets. Fill up them, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. The proof of what he's just said. And he goes further than John. He says, you're not only the offspring of serpents, you are snakes, you are poisonous, you're full of darkness and full of danger. But you know, John didn't use this description just of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you turn to Luke's Gospel, we're going to come back to, to Matthew, he actually uses it not only of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but even of the multitude themselves. Here it is, chapter 3, verse 9. He says, sorry, verse 7, Then said he to the multitude that come forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Friends, what a, a striking and a very, very strong description. That which is highly esteemed amongst men, and we admire many, is abomination in the sight of God. How differently God sees us from the way we see each other, 
and certainly the way that we see ourselves. Such a strong description, so full of the venom of pride and lust and unbelief. Do you remember when Paul had his hand bitten by that snake, the viper that came out of the fire as he started up the flames? The snake came out and clasped onto his hand and he cast it out into the flame and presumably killed it. That's God's instinct with us. He sees us as we are. He sees our character, our lives, our imagination, our thoughts. And it's as though to him we are like a poisonous snake. By nature, we're so unclean, so dangerous, so ugly in his sight. His natural inclination, as it were, is to cast us away. Do you remember going back to the very first book, Genesis? The Lord divides all of humanity, all of the future progeny into two camps. The seed of the woman, that is the Messiah who was to come, and the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the great snake. And old friends, how tragically, how fully, how completely that describes us. So deeply have we broken his will and despised his commandments that he looks upon us as as it were with a sense of loathing and dread for all our future and the future uh, of those who we influence and come into contact. He feels such a deep grief over what we are and what we've become. But John says to them these words, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, I wonder if you remember the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. Do you remember how the city was, cities were so full of violence and evil, so notorious for their criminality, their sexual filthiness, they even gave a name to the crime which uh, t- derives itself from the city, sodomy. And uh, their sins were very grievous to God, so grievous that he could see the young ones brought up in those cities would be corrupted and led astray and made worse even than their parents. Despite God's, despite Lot's godly example in the midst of them, he was going to destroy them. He was left with no option. How could he remonstrate with them further? How could he deal with them further? And then he sends, in answer to Abraham's plea, messengers, two angels like men, sent down to warn Lot. Well, imagine the situation, friends, if the two angels had sort of, in an inconceivable way, called at the wrong address. They knocked at the door, and out instead of Lot and his family, they see one of the ringleaders, one of the elders of the city, and their brows furrow, and their expression becomes stern, and they say, we've come to the wrong door. We've come to the wrong people. This person isn't worthy to be warned. This person isn't one to be called. Well, that's the sense behind what John is saying. You don't even deserve to be warned. You don't even deserve to be called. Who has warned you to flee from the anger to come? Who has warned you? You're so beyond help. Your situation is so bad. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's the sense of what John is saying to them. Do you see how shocking it is? Do you see how serious it is? You're not even worthy to be warned. You don't even deserve another appeal from this coming fury. Well, friends, I want to focus very briefly 
on something that's unpopular in the churches, but we need to consider it because it's very prominent in the scriptures. We cannot understand the cross without it. We cannot understand the love of God or the patience of God without it. And that is the anger of God and the justice of God. I just want to think about five aspects of it briefly with you and then we'll consider something else which I hope will be of great comfort and help to you. First of all, this fury of God is unexpected. It's unexpected. Have you ever heard of the great city of Pompeii on the, on the Mediterranean next to the, the great volcano of Vesuvius? In a sudden disaster, captured in a moment, right in the midst of their godlessness and their uncleanness, some people, inhabitants in that city, captured right in the midst of the very obscene lusts which depicted on their walls and depicted in their, their vessels, they were caught in the flame and the ash and the lava that flowed out of the volcano. They lulled themselves into complacency. They lulled themselves into sleepiness. But in an instant, the whole city was destroyed by the gases and the flames and the lava that came out of the great volcano. Or do you remember Lot's own son-in-laws, the bridegrooms of his own daughters, those who had seen his example close up, they'd seen his kindness, they'd seen his godliness, they knew his character. But when he came to them in the middle of the night and said, God is going to destroy this place, God is angry with this city, they mocked him, they jeered him, they walked away from him, they thought he was making a joke, they thought the whole thing was a grand hoax. Well, friends, now you can walk down into the valley of the Dead Sea Plain and there are the heaps of dust and you can smell the sulphur to which we're witness now. Or perhaps you remember that dreadful day, 21 years ago, to this very day, when on a sunny morning in a favoured city, in the very financial heart of a great city in America, thousands of lives were cruelly cut down and terribly cut short in an act of unprecedented evil. The Lord Jesus Christ warns us very plainly when he heard of similar disasters. He says, do you think they were conspicuously evil? Do you think they were marked out because of their special iniquities? No, he says, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Unless you repent, it's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to read the Bible. It's not enough to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. God's anger is unexpected and comes suddenly and dreadfully upon the ungodly who live in complacency. It has to be revealed to us. It has to be shown to us. We have to take God's word for it. It's shown to us in his word, in countless acts of judgment, some of which we've recounted, we also see it in his works of nature, in the great acts of storms and other huge events that overturn the natural order. And we even see it in, the, uh, uh, in his overruling of the works of evil men. So, dear friends, we must expect and prepare for his anger against sin. It's not wise for us to sleepwalk down to hell and to judgment. But the second thing I want to say about this divine anger is it's deeply unnatural. Not unnatural to nature, but unnatural to God. 
God is love. It's his nature to be kind and gracious. And his even nature itself, amongst its most savage creatures, abounds with the most tender kindness to the young. Leopards and lions and tigers and all manner of cruel creatures to others have the most tender hearts. God takes no pleasure in anger. He takes no delight in vengeance. To him it's a grim necessity. It is, a, it is something that he feels himself obliged to. But friends, it's a great mistake to think that God is negligent or careless or short-sighted or forgetful. Some people say, well, God is a kind of senile grandfather who's forgotten all about your theft. He's forgotten all about your hard words. But God is not like that. He's not indifferent to sin. Who is it that gets most angry with us? Is it not our own family? Is it not those who are closest to us? Those who love us most? Are they not those who tend to get the most angry with us? Are they not the most jealous for our, for our progress? The most concerned for our advantage? And all friends, sometimes love in a strange way is, is partnered with anger. God does not forget. God is not blind. He sees all. He never forgets. He knows all. And he will by no means acquit the guilty. One of the most dreadful passages in the New Testament is the description of the wrath of the lamb. The lamb. Have you ever seen a lamb getting angry? Have you ever seen a lamb getting furious? But here are the captains of the earth, the great dignitaries, the great men, the mighty men, the businessmen, calling out for the rocks and the earth to cover them. From what? From the flame? From the judgment? No, from the face of the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Oh, friends, have you ever seen your grandmother getting angry? I have. When I was a young, foolish teenager, I foolishly vandalised some of the flowers in her garden. And then that dearest, sweetest old lady who, to a fault, was generous and kind and indulgent, I saw an anger in her I've never seen before something terrible friends when somebody who would be kind to you you turn into, to an en- into an enemy something unsettling something unnerving how could we sin against God the author of all that is good how could he come to us as a saviour and we turn him into a prosecutor by neglecting him by ignoring him how could he come as a redeemer And we turn him into our judge and our sentencer. How could he come as a deliverer from sin and from our depravity and yet we turn him into our jailer? Oh friends, we have so deeply insulted him, so deeply offended him. We must go to him on his terms and in his way. If we go to him on our own terms, if we go and make up our own way back to him will offend him even the more do you remember Cain he thought he could go back to God in his own way with his own offering and yet he was cursed Korah did the same he thought he could go to God as he was as long as he went that was the main thing he was burnt up he was consumed and Ananias in a strange way did much the same thing he thought he could go to God with a generous bribe but in his own terms and in his own methods and he was struck down the moment he brought it Oh, friends, 
It's unnatural for God to be angry with us. But it is his response to sin. Sin is so deeply perverse, so deeply unnatural, it elicits from him something that would not have otherwise been seen. And then thirdly, God's anger is fierce. He is slow to anger. Very, very slow. Sometimes he waits hundreds of years before the Amorites are full, the sin of the Amorites is full, and then judgment comes upon the land. Sometimes he waits for generations of sinners. But when his anger comes, it burns like a fire, unquenchable and unstoppable. You ever seen a small child leading an elephant? Some lovely videos on YouTube of children leading elephants. But I can tell you from experience and from the experience of pastors in the church before, you don't want to deal with an angry elephant. Once their anger is kindled, they can be extremely dangerous. Oh, friends, go down again into the valley of the Dead Sea Plain. And there you'll see the dust, the ashes. You can smell the sulfur. But we know that that was once like Eden. We know that once that valley was fertile. We don't need to turn to the Bible for that uh, account alone. Even the archaeologists tell us there are a million burial places of a settled population. There were date palms. There were figs. There were pomegranates. It was a beautiful place, but the whole is consumed because of sin. It's a place now of scorpions and rodents and snakes. Oh, friends, there are some dreadful and terrible passages that describe the ferocity of God's anger. And we can see it in the pages of history. Great cities brought to nothing. Great armies wiped out in a night. Great empires crushed to the dust. And all these things God works sovereignly and according to his own glory. Dear friends, will you offend God? Will you neglect his way of pardon again and again and again? And then fourthly and very briefly, many people say God is not violent and he does not like violence. But the scripture very firmly contradicts that. God's anger is violent. You look at the hurricanes, you look at the forest fires, you look at the flood. Look at the miles of sedimentary layers, some of them folded while they're still soft. The millions that must have died, the billions of animals destroyed in that moment. God's patience waited till its limits and then the deluge came. There is a very firm death penalty laid for sin. Oh friends, will you escape his anger? Will you evade his wrath? Will you escape his accounting? And then finally, his anger is final. It is absolutely just. There's no second thoughts with God. His anger is perfectly tempered. It's like steel. There is no outburst of indignant wrath with second regrets afterwards. There's no court of appeal. When he is angry, he is just. And there is no escape. No appeal, no exit from it, no exclusions. Oh, friends, if you will not seek his mercy now, if you will not repent, if you harden your heart against him, well, your future is desperate, hopeless. His punishment is eternal. It's final and unending. There will be no end to your sorrow. Oh, friends, seek him and turn to him. 
a million years and you'll still be looking back lamenting your folly a million years and you'll discover yet more and more that fire is truly unquenchable now what does John say he says who has warned you to escape from the wrath to come oh friends there is a chink of light there is a chink of hope even to the Sadducees even to these human snakes that come before him these wicked lawyers but you know something forgiveness is a deceit forgiveness is a lie it's a belying of God's law and of his character unless unless it's based on atonement unless it's based on atonement how could God just brush our sins under his seat how could he just forget them how could he just deal with them slightly many people caricature Islam by quoting one of the uh, hadiths by saying he says some to paradise and I care not some to Gehenna or hell and I care not and it is a bit of a caricature but there certainly is a nasty uh, fatalistic streak in Islam as you'll find for example in Surah 14 verse 4 he misguides whom he will but if forgiveness is just given to his particular favourites if forgiveness is just meted out to some on the basis of his own caprice and no other basis then it's a lie it's a denying of his law he says you shall not do that thing and you'll be punished if you do and then he retracts the law no friends where can we go for escape where can we go for help our salvation must rest in one who has borne the judgment for us in a substitute one with whom we are united as one he is identified with our sin though sinless himself and we are identified with his righteousness and so that we are treated by God as though we were one party with him in law he bears our dreadful curse and his name the Lamb of God his name the one the high priest who sacrifices himself who bears our guilt beloved ones escape from the fury of God escape from his coming anger of God it is righteous it is just it is holy but he is angry he is furious seek him don't run from him run to him run to his son run to his provision grasp hold of his promise seize hold of his mercy now he's calling you he's commanding you tenderly humble yourself friends confess your sins to him and ask him for a new heart and a new spirit go to him while he's still near to be found for his sake let's pray